Welcome to the Real View podcast, where Ohio realtors connect you to innovators and influencers, keeping you with the real view of real estate. Whether you're a broker, agent, first time home buyer, industry leader, or just happen to stumble upon our podcast today, you can expect to hear tips, tools, tricks, interesting information, and so much more from the experts in Ohio's real estate game. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Real View Podcast. I'm your host, Allison Wiley. With me is my co-host, Carrie R. Blaster. And joining us today is a very special guest who we are just thrilled to have on and to speak to today. Jim Obergefell, thank you for joining us today. June is Pride Month, and what better person to have on today than Jim? So thank you both for joining us today. We have so much to talk about. And we are so excited. But before we dive into things, I will let Carrie take it off with our question. Yes, I know Allison prepped you, Jim, for our signature question. As she said, the name of our podcast is The Real View. And what we like to ask all of our guests is what is the best view that they have ever seen? So what's it for you? Well, thank you for having me on first, Carrie and Allison. I'm thrilled to be here. And my answer might surprise people considering what we're going to talk about in my experiences. But the best view in my life was being on Potsdamer Platz in Berlin in November 1989, watching them tear down the Berlin Wall. That that wow. just gave me goosebumps. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. I thought that was my brush with history. I guess I was wrong. You were, oh my goodness. <laughs> You've had two. You've had two amazing brushes with history. Thank you for that, Jim. That's a great segue into a little bit about your personal background, because you actually studied German at the University of Cincinnati, correct? Correct. Yes, and then and I, taught. Yes, I was a high school German teacher for two years, realized that wasn't for me. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> high school teachers, so that's a tough oh, job. I love them. Yep, yes. that's right. <laughs> Well, that's phenomenal. Obviously, you know, most people are familiar with your name, so they know where we're going to get in this conversation. But before we get there, we do want to give you an opportunity just to share with our listeners a little bit about your story and who you were before you became a household name. So let's talk just a little bit about your time at UC. And of course, since this episode is going to air during June, during Pride Month, we would love to hear from you what it was like to be coming out in the 80s as a young man. Right. Well, I wish I could say that I actually came out in the 80s. You know, I pushed open the closet door a few times at UC. You know, my first year there as a resident in Calhoun Hall. There was a cute boy on my floor and, you know, the closet door opened a few times with him, but it was the mid 80s at the height, really the beginning of the AIDS and HIV crisis. And it was terrifying. You know, I had never admitted to myself fully that I was gay. Clearly I was, but to be scared about being gay, to be closeted in that time was just it truly was terrifying because I I really did think if I kiss this boy or whatever, I'm going to get AIDS and die. It was a very real fear. So for me, you know, even from an early age when I was probably in middle school, I knew I was different because I would cut out the pages of the J.C. Penney's and Sears catalog with men's underwear and hide them. I wanted them. I couldn't explain why, but I also knew that it was wrong, so I hit them. So I knew from a young age, I felt different. Couldn't put a word to it probably until high school, and I just ran as far from that as I could. 
So it wasn't until graduate school, after I finished teaching, I went to graduate school, and it was in graduate school at Bowling, Bowling Green State University, where I finally found an environment where differences weren't just tolerated, they were celebrated. And I consider my coming out moment, I was on a road trip with two friends in the program, going to Wooster, Ohio, and Cassandra was driving, Matt was in the front seat, and I was in the back seat. And my friend Cassandra, out of the blue, said, so, guys, are you gay or straight? And as Matt was answering in the front seat, you know, gay, that doesn't take a whole long time to say gay, but to me, it felt like forever. And I was freaking out in the back seat, internally thinking, what am I going to do? Am I going to continue the lie and say I'm straight? Or am I going to finally just admit it to myself and other people and surprise myself by saying gay? And it was that moment of just feeling relief and that moment of joy that, wow, I've actually said it to myself and to others. And I have to say, my coming out experience was great. I know how fortunate I am to say that. I'm the baby of six in a Catholic family, and my mom passed away, so I never got to know her as my true self. But I'd become very close with my dad, and I was terrified to tell him, like we all are when we come out, because I thought, here's this mid-60s, blue-collar Catholic man, how's he going to respond? And when I finally gathered courage and told him, he said, Jim, all I've ever wanted is for you to be happy. Oh, wow. And yeah. I realized how lucky I am that that was his response, because far too many kids, they're kicked out of their home, or they lose that relationship. So I was very fortunate, and the rest of my family was was fantastic, equally as good as my dad, equally as supportive. That's amazing. So glad to hear that. Yeah, thank you for sharing. So let's move on to when you met John, the man who became your husband. We read a little bit. We were Googling you, full transparency. So we, we have maybe kind of an idea of how this played <laughs> out, but we want to hear from you. How did you meet John, and what was your relationship like? So. I met John through a mutual friend, actually one of the other people in the work-study program in Hamburg in Germany was one of John's fraternity brothers. So this was after we had all graduated. I was going out with my friend Kevin and we went to Uncle Woody's bar just across the street from UC's campus. And we walk in and Kevin said, oh, there's my friend John at the bar. So we walk up and here's John, this tall, slender, blonde man. and Kevin introduced us, and honestly, John scared the daylights out of me because he clearly what I mean, he was comfortable in his own skin. He was an out gay man and didn't hide it and wasn't wasn't afraid of, of letting people know that. And I was terrified because this was before I had come out. And all I could think was, he's going to see right through me and he's going to call me out on it. But he didn't. So that was our first meeting. Second meeting. I was now in graduate school and I had come out, but I was back in Cincinnati, went out with that same friend, Kevin. We went back to Uncle Woody's and guess who was again sitting at the bar, but John. So we met a second time. And during that conversation, John said something along the lines of, well, you'd never go out with someone like me. And I have no idea where I found the wit to say this or the courage, but I said, how do you know you've never asked? And he still did it. He still didn't. <laughs> no. So that was that was probably, I want to say August or September. I was then back in Cincinnati for the holidays. 
And by this point, Kevin had become one of John's housemates. John had a house in Hyde Park, and I think he had five or six housemates at that point. They were having a New Year's Eve party, so Kevin invited me to the party. And as I like to say, I went to that party, and I never left. John and I became a couple. That's awesome. Wow. That's awesome. I love stories like that. It's like almost like fate. Like, it took how many interactions, but, like, it kept happening. And you know what I mean? Like, I just, I love when stuff works out like that. You know, it's almost like, you know, you're going to end up with this guy, whether it's the first (laughs) meeting or the third. That's certainly how it felt. And, you know, John and I, we used to always like to joke that for us, it wasn't love at first sight. It was love at third sight. But John was this amazingly charming man. And he had a way with the English language like no one I've ever known other than his brother. They both could walk into a situation and read it, understand what was going on, but then describe it perfectly, describe it in ways that I would have never been able to do. He just had such facility with the English language. It was beautiful. He was funny. He was sarcastic. He could be scary (laughs) at times, especially if if he had too much gin to drink (laughs) and you were on the receiving end of it. But he was just this, he was in some ways larger than life, but also someone who wanted to be not the center of attention. He never liked feeling like he was on display or something about him made him obvious or made him stick out. He just wanted to be quiet, John, with loads of friends, with a beautiful home. And that's really what he, what he was and what he became. So we just very quickly became a couple. And I would say within the first year, we started talking marriage. But, you know, we both agreed it, it had to be something that meant something legally. We didn't want it just to be symbolic. But yeah, he was just this amazing man. Just That's awesome. Yeah. That's wonderful. And I love it that you still smile when you talk about him. That's yes, just you can tell the love mm-hmm. just when you speak about him, your whole face lights up. It's beautiful. That's right. Our listeners can't see that, but we can. <laughs> so I feel like we should describe it because it's it's absolutely fantastic. So you said that you started talking about marriage early on. And of course, at this time, marriage was legal, maybe in a handful of places, kind of, certainly not in your home state of Ohio. So maybe talk with us a little bit about, you know, what your conversation centered on. If if prior to, you know, leaving the state to get married, did you think about doing that, you know, before or if, you know, I think I don't know if everybody knows your marriage story, but it's it's one that's very beautiful. You know, we'd love to hear hear about that. Well, when we started talking marriage, it wasn't possible anywhere. This was the early I mean, our third meeting was New Year's Eve 1991 into 1992. So it wasn't a possibility anywhere. It wasn't something that any of us thought could ever happen. But within a few years, it came up for us again because there was a court case in Hawaii and there was the possibility that marriage equality would happen in Hawaii because of this court case. And John's stepmom at the time said, well, if this happens, I'm taking the whole family to Hawaii so you guys can get married. Well, that didn't happen. So we really did. We thought this is never going to be an option for us. We just thought we would live our lives always being partners, but never being able to call each other husband and have it mean anything legally. But as things started to change, especially in the 2000s, you know, 2003, Massachusetts became the first state to allow it. And then even 
in the you know 2013, when things changed for us dramatically regarding marriage, there was a lot happening around the country and state after state, either by legislative means, the ballot box, or court cases, marriage was becoming a possibility all in many places around the country. But again, we had decided we we didn't want to get married unless it actually meant something, unless the government recognized us as a married couple. So Ohio certainly wasn't going to happen. And it wasn't until June 26, 2013, when the Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act with their decision in the United States versus Windsor, that suddenly here was this first time in our almost 21 years together where marriage being legally recognized by the federal government could happen. Now, we had given up on marriage. We had never talked about marriage other than those initial conversations because we really just thought it's never going to happen. Well, on June 26, 2013, you know, for us, things had, had really taken a turn for an unexpected turn, not a good turn when John was diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. So on June 26, 2013, he was a couple months into being in at-home hospice care, and I was his full-time caregiver. But I was standing next to his bed holding his hand when that decision came out. And spur of the moment, with no planning, never having thought about it, I just leaned over, hugged him, and kissed him and said, let's get married. And, and it was like he that said was yes. like the perfect time to do it. You know, so much was going on. And, and once again, it's like the stars aligned. It was kind of, you know, fate. Absolutely. And it really was. It's like, wait, we can actually get married and have at least the federal government say we exist, that our, our relationship matters. So luckily he said yes. But then we had to figure out, well, where do we get married? Because we can't do it in Ohio. And then more importantly, or more more of a complication was how do we get John there? You know, people across the country got married, never thought twice about it because they just went to their co county courthouse and got a marriage license and got married. Well, we couldn't do that. You know, in a perfect world, I could have put John in his wheelchair and taken him to the Hamilton County Courthouse, six blocks away from our condo. Couldn't do that. So we eventually settled on Maryland for one really important reason. It was the only state that did not require both people to appear in person to apply for the marriage license. Wow. And my whole goal in this was, if we're going to do this, I want to make sure I keep John as safe and as comfortable and as healthy as possible. So this meant the whole issue of a marriage license, and a lot of states have you know, a waiting period after you get the marriage license. I could get that license in advance, and then the only travel we had to do was to get back to Maryland and home the same day to get married. So that was why we picked Maryland. So what was that like going there and getting going through that process? What did it mean to you to finally have that and kind of be recognized, you know, in the courts as a married couple? It was amazing. I mean, I, I have to admit, when I flew to Baltimore and then drove to Annapolis to get the marriage license, I was petrified walking into that office. I really didn't know how they would treat me. I didn't know if they would look at me like, seriously, you want a marriage license? Even though it's legal there, I still carried in a lot of baggage around doing something that everyone else couldn't do. And it was as not exciting as it was a boring governmental office visit. So I got that license. And then, of course, the big thing we had to figure out was how do we get John to Maryland? And 
I don't often say good things about social media. So the only positive thing I will say about Facebook is we decided that the only way to get John there was by chartering a medical jet. And they're expensive. And it's something we could afford, but I thought, I'm just going to go to Facebook, see if anyone has a contact, you know, something that might help mitigate the cost. And so I posted and said, hey, everyone, we're, we're going to get married. Anyone know a pilot or someone with a chartered company? And our family and friends just started saying, no, Jim, sorry, we don't. But you know what? You and John deserve to get married and we want to make it, help make it happen. So please accept this gift of cash. And they covered the entire $14,000 cost of that jet. So it was unbelievable. And it was just, you know, our family and friends who knew us and loved us, like, we want you to get married. We want to help make it happen. And I mean, we were incredibly fortunate incredibly lucky that people wanted to be part of it. And I have to say, being in that chartered medical jet, sitting on the tarmac at BWI airport and holding John's hand and saying, I do, I thee wed, it was the happiest moment of our lives because we finally got to commit to each other to make those promises public and legal. And the beautiful thing was John's favorite aunt, his aunt Paulette, she was the one who officiated because she had told us years before you guys, in my my opinion, represent marriage better than any other couple I know. And if you can ever get married, I want to do it. So she had gone to the internet and clicked the ordain me button. So she was with us. And for her to be the one to officiate made it even more special. And it's hard to describe, really, to put into words, to explain how different we felt doing this. You know. I'd like to say in some ways, saying I do, nothing changed, but in other ways, everything changed. It just made us feel different, made us feel better, made us feel more complete. It was an amazing experience. And it just meant more, something that, you know, you never thought that you would be able to do now. You've accomplished this. And then it's just, it just adds, you know, so much more, another layer onto what it was already an incredible relationship. And it just made it that much more special, that much more real, probably. There's probably like a sense of realness about it. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to describe it. It just felt more real. And, you know, add on to it the knowledge, the certainty that John wasn't going to be alive much longer. It just made it even more important, more special because of that. And it was able to happen before he ended up passing away, just a few months after you all were married. But how awesome to have, you know, those couple months together and, you know, be able to share that experience with him while he was still here. Absolutely. And say the word husband hundreds of times every day. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because and we did. That, which is so incredible that you were able to able to get that, able to get it done. I love hearing that story. This episode of The Real View is brought to you by the Ohio Association of Community Colleges. Ohio's network of community colleges provides accessible training that accommodates the busy lifestyles of aspiring real estate professionals at half the price of a traditional university. With convenient locations in every part of the state, as well as online options, Ohio's community colleges are your smart choice for pre-licensing education. For more details or to start the journey to a real estate career, Visit the education page at ohiorealtors.org and then click on the pre-licensed course locations. Then that kind of leads us into now your first kind of 
court case issues with that was, you know, you guys got married, got to spend some incredible months together as husband and husband. And then after his passing, kind of walk us through what happened after you got married in Baltimore and then came back to Ohio. And obviously things are much different in Ohio than they were in Maryland at the time. So tell us a little bit about what happened next kind of after that. Right. So one of our friends who worked at the Cincinnati Inquirer had asked if she could write a story about us going to Maryland and to get married. So that we got married on a Thursday and that story was in the print printed paper on Sunday, but it came out online on Saturday. So two days after we got married, friends of ours were at a party where they ran into a friend of theirs who's a civil rights attorney in Cincinnati, Al Gerhardstein. And she brought up our story and said, well, it's online today. You should read it when you have a chance, Al. Well, Al actually left that party without telling his wife and went back to his office and rooted through his files until he found a blank Ohio death certificate. And then he reached out to our friends to ask if we would be willing to meet with them. So we had no idea what he wanted to talk about. But five days after we got married, he came to our home and he had that blank Ohio death certificate with him. And he said, guys, do you get it? Do you understand that when John dies, his last official record as a person will be wrong? Ohio will say he's unmarried. And Jim, your name will not be listed as his surviving spouse. Now, I think some people think, well, Jim, duh, you lived in Ohio. You couldn't get married in Ohio. Wasn't that just obvious. And my answer is, you know, we knew Ohio wouldn't recognize our marriage, but that was an abstract understanding. This death certificate, this blank form, official form, made that abstract understanding real, made it harmful, made it hurtful. So Al asked us if we wanted to do something about it. And after John and I discussed it, we said, we do. And that something was filing a lawsuit against the state of Ohio and the city of Cincinnati. Certainly not something I ever expected, neither one of us ever expected in our lifetime to do, to, to sue the government. But, you know, having Al make that simple explanation about the death certificate, you know, you can imagine, we just got married, it broke our hearts, but I think more importantly, it made us angry. And we weren't activists at all. And I think in that moment, we were both born as activists, and that's something that, that has continued with me because here was harm being done to us and by extension, lots of other couples like us. And we had an opportunity to say, this is what we believe in, this is what we're willing to fight for and we will do it or not. And for us, it was such an easy decision. That's so cool. And once again, you guys got to do that, you know, together and made that decision, you know, and, and got to experience that together. So you decide then to go ahead and proceed with filing against the state of Ohio. And um, initially it did not go very well and it was not a positive um, outlook. So talk to us about, you know, that initial first reaction. What was going through your mind when you made the decision to file? You file. I'm sure there's a lot of nerves and anxiety around that. And then when that decision first came out, you know, what was that like? And then how did you come to terms or decide, make that decision to move ahead with a larger case? Well, actually, you know, we filed suit eight days after we got married. And because of John's health, federal district court judge Timothy Black, federal judge Timothy Black had to clear his docket and hear the case right away. So I was in his courtroom on Monday, July 22nd, just 11 days after we got married for the hearing in our case. and. At five o'clock that day, he released his ruling and said, State of Ohio and City of Cincinnati, 
John and Jim's marriage exists, and you must recognize it on John's death certificate at the time he dies. So we went from this within, you know, eight days or whatever it is from the day we met Al, less than a week. It was six days. That's the crazy thing, right? I, I can't do math anyway. <laughs> it was this really short span from meeting Al, deciding to file suit, filing suit, and getting a win. And having this federal judge say, yeah, your marriage deserves recognition. Your marriage deserves respect. And I mean, how wonderful was that to know that at least one court agreed with us and said we deserve that right? So that ruling was a temporary injunction, which the state could not appeal while John was alive. So three months later to the day of that win, John passed away. And within a month or two, the state of Ohio appealed to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And at that point, Al Gerhardstein had a second case, which was about the beginning of life and birth certificates. He had several couples who had adopted or given birth in Ohio and sued Ohio for accurate birth certificates listing both parents' names. They also won in that same courtroom with Judge Timothy Black. Well, that case, our case, cases from Kentucky, Tennessee, and Michigan were then all consolidated and we went to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in August of 2014. And going into that, at this point, the case had grown to more than 30 plaintiffs and more than 20 attorneys from all across the country. And the legal team just kept saying, don't get your hopes up. The Sixth Circuit, which is in Cincinnati, is one of the more conservative ones in the nation. And that turned out to be good advice because they ruled against us. And I have to say, after that loss in the Sixth Circuit, every day I went to the mailbox, I thought, is this the day I open the mailbox and there's an updated death certificate saying John, is, John died as a single man with my name erased? Never happened, but I have to say that was a very real fear. It's just after you go through all of that and, and losing him as if that wasn't enough, now you're battling you know, this legal battle with just being able to, to have that right as his spouse, you know, in his last moments. And it's just, I just, I can't even, I'm trying to like put myself in your shoes and experience grief and losing, you know, your life partner. And then, you know, having to now fight against the courts too. I mean, that just must have been such a crazy and emotional and stressful time. It was heartbreaking. It certainly made me angry. And, you know, that, I guess that was the moment in this whole thing where I could have said, you know what, I'm still trying to figure out life without John. I'm still grieving. You know, it had been a year since John had died when they ruled against us. And I guess that was the moment when I could have said, I just want to go back to being anonymous, Jim. I just want to go back to my life, whatever that life is without John. But I couldn't do it because if I didn't keep fighting, in my mind, I wasn't living up to my promises to love, honor, and protect John. And there was no way in the world that I wasn't going to do that. So... The silver lining, you know, the Sixth Circuit was the first appeals court to rule against marriage equality. There were at least three other appeals courts, probably more. I lost track of how many cases there were around the country, but there were at least three other appeals courts that had ruled in favor of marriage equality. So now here's one saying no, while the other said yes, which meant, okay, silver lining, maybe the Supreme Court will take the case. And that's what happened. And that kind of led you that little bit of hope and seeing that there was a possibility that it could get turned around. And that did that lead you to kind of then go ahead and move forward with the Supreme Court case? 
Oh, I mean, there was no no question when we filed suit with the Supreme Court and they accepted it. There was no question ever that I wasn't going to be part of that. You know, from the start, I knew I was in this for as long as it took. There wasn't anything that would get me out of this. And, you know, I also have to say, here we were going to the Supreme Court. And even from the start of our case, a lot of national LGBTQ rights organizations tried to talk Al out of our case. They reached out and said, Al, drop this case. It's the wrong case. It doesn't fit our, meaning those organizations, strategy to win marriage equality. Like, drop the case, drop the case, drop the case. And Al, to his credit, well, he's just an amazing man. His response was always the same. I have clients who are being harmed. My job, my duty, my responsibility to them as their attorney is to fight for them. So, no, we will not drop this case. And here we were going to the Supreme Court. And I'm sure there was still a lot of a lot of um, nervous people in national organizations thinking, oh, no, this could be the worst possible yeah, thing. Yeah. It should not have been this case. But, but... it was. <laughs> here we were. Here, there you were. And it, it was happening. Allison and I were talking a little bit about this before we got on with you. Like we can we remember where we were. We remember, you know, like what a huge change and victory it was. You know, I knew people here in Ohio who were trying to fight to change the law in Ohio. And they were just like, yes, you know, this we, oh my gosh, you know, so, but we can't imagine, I mean, getting goosebumps, just imagining what it was like for you. You were there in the courtroom. Is that correct? I was there in the courtroom. I, I decided early on, I had to be in the courtroom when that decision came down and you never know when it's going to happen. But traditionally the Supreme Court holds on to decisions on big cases until the end of their term, which ends in June. So the only day they schedule decisions are on Monday. So I started going back to DC. I was there June 15th, no decision. I was there June 22nd, no decision. At this point, we all thought, well, the decision's going to be on Monday, June 29th, the last day of their term. But on the 22nd, we're out front of the courthouse and someone came running out to say, well, they just added Thursday, June 25th as a decision day. A couple minutes later, someone else came running out. They just added Friday, June 26th as decision day. Now, I was there with Al, other, other people, and we all just looked at each other and said, it's going to be on Friday. And the reason we said that, United States versus Windsor that struck down DOMA came out on June 26th. A win for our community, a win for merit, a win for you know, equality. In 2003, 2003, 2004, I always forget which one, Lawrence versus Texas, their decision striking down anti-sodomy laws came out on June 26th. So at that point, we're like, it's going to be Friday. So got there Friday morning, took my place in line in front of the Supreme Court. And this is, I think, one of my favorite stories. Every time I'd been in the Supreme Court, you know, I was just out on the, the sidewalk to be in public seats. And this was when I was there for oral arguments and every decision day. And a court officer would come by and hand out tickets for the courtroom. And it was usually like 50 to 70 people maybe more, I don't know. That's always been the number I use. I have no idea where I came up with it. But he, the officer would hand out those tickets. Well, on Friday, June 26, you know, we're all already feeling optimistic. And that officer came by, handed out the tickets. And we're all just chatting because a lot of the same people were there every day I was there. So we're chatting. And I happened to look down at my ticket and I noticed that something had changed. Every other day I had been in the courtroom, that ticket was bright orange. Well, on Friday, June 26th, it was lavender. 
Wow. We're like, well, this has to be a side. I mean, there's no other reason for this ticket to be a different color and for it to be lavender of all colors. So when court opened and we took our seats, we were already feeling something good's going to happen. Court came to session and Justice Kennedy started reading his summary of the decision. And, you know, my initial thought was we won. And he kept reading and come on, attorneys, come on, lawyers, justices, can you write a little bit more clearly for those of us who aren't attorneys? Because I found myself wondering, well, did we win? I don't know. <laughs> we then, look confusing <laughs> with all the, the attorney language, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. But then once I finally realized, yes, we did win. I mean, I burst into tears. People around the courtroom were crying. Al, our attorney, said he has never seen so many attorneys crying in a courtroom. And not surprising, my first thought was, John, I wish you were here. I wish you could experience this. I wish you could know that our marriage exists and always will. But then the surprising thing that hit me was, huh, for the first time in my life as an out gay man, I felt like an equal American. Wow. Love that. Wow. What That's a cool moment. Phenomenal. It made me tearing up, honestly. <laughs> it's amazing. Absolutely yeah, amazing. It was. That's that's so great. But then, of course, we had to listen to the Chief Justice and Justice Thomas read their dissents, which I merely ignored. I'm like, I don't care what you have to say. We won. <laughs> Just let us right. go. <laughs> <laughs> we need to start partying and celebrating. Like, forget this. <laughs> that's because I, I knew there was a huge party already happening out on the plaza in front of the, the courthouse because, you know, that decision was spread very quickly. And I just wanted to be out front with everyone else celebrating and having fun. You know, Carrie and I said we were both talking about where we were when the decision came out. And I remember everyone at the State House in Columbus here was, you know, going crazy and just the lighting up of all of the rainbow pride colors. And it was such a cool moment. Did you ever think in your wildest dreams that you would be the one to change the course of history for same-sex marriage in the United States? No. No, absolutely not. How could you ever imagine that or dream that up? And, you know, it's also one of those things that still I feel there's a sense of guilt. I feel that it's called Obergefell v. Hodges because I'm not the only person. John and I weren't the only story. You know, there were more than 30 other plaintiffs with stories equally as compelling as ours. And I feel I, I hate that you know, my name and my face has, has become shorthand for marriage equality when I certainly did not do it alone. And I couldn't have done it without them and without the legal team. And honestly, without people like Edie Windsor and Frank Kameny and the countless activists and brave people over the decades who, who stood up and fought for equality for the LGBTQ plus community. And it, it did. It took it took a small village, but wow, how incredible and, and how amazing that you got to be a part of that with the others who literally changed the course of history. So, so amazing. So incredible. Um, love hearing that. What an amazing celebration for June, the Pride Month and the fact that this decision happened in June, too. Just how cool and how great and, you know, how thankful I am. And I'm sure all of our listeners are that this decision happened. Um, it was way overdue. Carrie and I were talking. We said, what year was this again? And it was like 2017. And it was like, it's, we took that long, Ugh, you know, but how amazing that finally, you know, it is recognized and hopefully it stays that way forever. And 
you've single-handedly impacted thousands of actually millions of Americans, you know, who may never have had this opportunity before. So great work and great work to, you know, your tribe that you mentioned and, and your legal team and Al and John too. I mean, you say, I wish he was there, but I'm sure he was there on that day, smiling down on you and, and as every bit was celebrating, you know, with you for that day. So Thank you, Jim, for sharing your story and for your amazing work. And you're a true history maker. <laughs> so it was our honor and our pleasure to talk to you um, today. Carrie, thanks for being on with me, too. Like we said, June is Pride Month, so lots to celebrate. And we are very proud <laughs> to have you on today. And hopefully we will talk to you very soon. To our listeners, thank you all for listening. And we will see you guys next time. Thank you, Allison and Carrie, very much. This was, was a lot of fun. And Happy Pride to everyone. And just remember, we might have marriage, but we still don't really have marriage equality. And we certainly don't have full equality. The LGBTQ plus community is not part of we the people. And we're not the only marginalized community who can say that. There's still a lot of work to do in our nation for us to live up to our ideals. Still a lot of work to do for sure, but we will be hopeful and the fight will continue, especially if we have exactly great people right. like you leading the way. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to The Real View. That wraps up today's episode. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at ohiorealtors.org slash The Real View and on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Have questions, comments, or suggestions? We want to hear from you. Email us at podcast at ohiorealtors.org. We'll see you next time. This has been a Humble Pod production. Stay humble.